interviewing your favorite musicians, comedians, and other creative souls. This is The Carrie Edelman Show. Welcome to The Carrie Edelman Show. I am so excited today as we have the former TV producer turned chef, Mad in the Kitchen, Madeline Smithberg. So before I bring her on, I'm going to do a nice introduction for her, and I'm also going to do a brief introduction for the show. She is going to be one of the amazing guests I have had the honor and pleasure of having on this show. I started this show, I can't believe it, uh, several years ago because I really wanted to bring people on in the entertainment industry that were doing really unique creative things to help promote them and get their names out of there. So she's going to be joining today TV producer and illustrator John Matta, award-winning New Yorker cartoonist Bob Eckstein, comedian and head writer Seinfeld writer Peter Melman, and New York Times bestselling author Jennifer Keshin Armstrong, to name a few. So please check out the podcast. I do a really different type of interview. I'm going to really delve into their life story. This is not a cookie-cutter interview. I want to really have my guests get to know the individuals that I have on my show. And also, I always throw this out there. Although um, I have a background in psychology, my show is purely an entertainment show. We are not doing any type of uh, analysis on here or therapy, but we do sometimes talk about psychological concepts in more general terms, especially if it's going to be in an educational manner. So if you're tuning in, create a Blog Talk Radio account by going to blogtalkradio.com. All right, so let's do a nice introduction for Madeline, and then we're going to bring her on. As I mentioned, so she has had a 30-year TV producing career. She worked uh, at David Letterman and also co-created The Daily Show, along with winning Emmy and Peabody Awards. But right now, who she has become is the star of her hilarious, delicious, must-watch TV YouTube cooking show titled Mad in the Kitchen, where she's also a guest on numerous morning television shows, including Today with Hoda and Jenna, and I will comment later in the interview on one of my favorite ones that I recently saw her on. And this is just a really cool pivot that she's done. As I mentioned, this woman is someone who has, for me personally, exuded authenticity and resiliency, grit, determination. And we're really going to show you that today as we take you on her journey. But she's now in front of the camera. I mean, she's always been in back of the camera, and now she's out front. She is hilarious. She has definitely comedy chops when you see her cooking. And uh, let's get into more when we bring her on. I don't want to give too much away. So check out Matt in the Kitchen. It is on YouTube, as I said, and she will share later on in the interview all of her different social media sites. Welcome, Madeline. Hello. How are Hi, you? Hi, Carrie. <laughs> I'm fine, only the funny, the funny thing is I had it in my calendar. I'm in uh, Seattle. And I thought we were doing this at 2.30. I was literally about to jump in the shower, and I got your oh. email, and I thought, oh, boy, okay. Oh, my go. gosh. Go. Okay, so wait. So just so I'm glad that my neuroses and my own neurotic behavior paid off because I was like, I don't want to bother her. I'm like, but I'm getting anxious, so let me just send her a quick oh. message just to make sure. <laughs> It popped up. I was like, oh, my God, okay, okay, we can do this. I can talk. One thing I can always do. <laughs> right, definitely, definitely. So thank you so much for coming on. It is an absolute pleasure to have you. And I think one of my favorite things with all of my guests, and particularly you, was just kind of delving into the research and really learning about your history and your background. That, to me, is like one of the most, I mean, 
some people would say that's tedious, but for me, with my background in psychology and doing research and stuff, that's like one of my favorite things to do. So I really, really had a blast just learning about you. So we're going to delve into that. Okay. You did your okay. homework. I'm really happy. <laughs> and you spelled <laughs> my name right, which no one ever does. Oh, cool. Okay. So um, let's start out as I do with all my interviews. I always like to start from the beginning. Like, tell me a little bit, as far back as you can remember as a little kid growing up in Manhattan, New York, you know, how would you describe your personality? Like, what were you like as a really little kid? If you can recall, like, four, five, six years old, and then we'll start delving into, you know, how you got involved, of course, in TV producing and how this cooking interest isn't something that came later in life. It it had themes throughout your entire life, which was so interesting. So start there, and then we'll we'll go into more detail. Okay. Well, I, I would like to say that I think I won like the 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 parents' lottery. Uh, my parents, uh, my mother is still alive, but my mom and dad were just these absolutely cool, like bohemian New Yorkers. And I was when I was born, we lived. I have memories that go back to nine months old. But we lived for the first three years in a beautiful Sanford White townhouse. It was like a, you know, an apartment in it in Chelsea in New York. And I was the center of this wonderful universe of these two people. I was going to, you know, I, I, I was involved in local and national politics when I was a baby in that I had like Kennedy stickers on my on my carriage that, that they would wheel me around the neighborhood and then the, the truck would come by that said, you know, vote Kennedy and the loudspeaker and they would say, hello, Madeline. Like, and I was in a carriage, uh, like, you know, growing up in New York city and also in a family that appreciated everything that New York had to offer, mm-hmm. uh, I think really shaped who I am. It, uh, I always had an outgoing uh, personality uh, because I was also very loved. And and my mother tells the story of being on a beach with me when I'm less than two years old and she can't find me and oh, panicking. And then I'm on somebody else's blanket and I'm eating a chicken leg. So that was <laughs> sort of like I, I've always been very friendly and outgoing and, you know, confident in a healthy, not obnoxious way because mm-hmm. I felt safe. And then my brother was born when I was three and we moved to a, a high-rise apartment still in Chelsea. And at that point, I felt like my entire world had shattered and that the reason uh, that, that they had put me off in this cell, which was my own bedroom, was because they knew that I wanted the baby dead. I would figure this out way later uh, in with a, a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, but okay. I literally wanted him dead. But it, but yeah, so my background was I was 17 when I met my first Republican. I thought everybody in the world was Jewish, liberal, and an artist because that's all I knew. Right. And, wow. Uh, it was, yeah. It, boy, did I have a shock when I went to college. <laughs> well, we're going to, we'll definitely get to that in a little bit, because I'm going to ask you some questions about that. So, right. So as you said, you were the center of your parents' um, universe, so to speak, and then your brother came along. Do you have any other siblings other than the one brother? No, just me and Nick. And he just was here this weekend visiting my, our mother. Uh, he's nice. three years younger and uh, funniest person I've ever met. Like, just, he is so brilliant. It's ridiculous. 
What is he? Um, uh, I was going to ask later, but what does he? If you don't let me ask him, what does he do for a living? Well, he is an attorney, and he always wanted to be in public interest law, mm-hmm. uh, but he ended up sort of falling into a corporate law path. And then uh, just, I think, three years ago, they moved from the Upper West Side to Des Moines, Iowa, because Nick Smithberg, my brother, got a job as the head of legal aid for the state of Iowa. Wow. And he is doing some really incredible, incredible work there. I'm That's so great. proud of him. Yeah. And he has two well, boys and a wonderful wife, my sister-in-law, Betsy, and uh, trying to figure out when we can get to Iowa. Nice. Thank you for sharing that. No, that's interesting. Well, I mean, again, that says something, as you said, about your parents. I mean, between you and your brother, I mean, you're both immensely successful. And um, while we're talking about that, let's really quick. You're, I read that your mom had, if it's correct, two PhDs? Yeah, it's really sad to talk about in the context of where she is right now because she's 90 years old and she has okay. succumbed to dementia and I'm her principal caregiver. She's in an you know, assisted living facility in the dementia ward and, you know, I go oh, wow. and see her several times a week. Now, finally, I didn't get to see her for almost a year. I mean, I would just FaceTime with her or have what's called a window visit, but that mm-hmm. was really not satisfying for her and then we would be like outdoors but in her prime my mother who I think modeled you know sort of the 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 concept that as a woman as anyone you can be whatever you want to be and that was always what I was taught my mother was uh she has two she ended up with two PhDs she was uh worked in early childhood education at Bank Street College of Education where I went to the lab school as did my brother my okay. son and his sons, actually. Uh, but uh, she was the national director of something called Follow Through, which was a continuation of Head Start. So she would travel all around the country and uh, work with the parents and teachers in underprivileged schools to teach reading. And then wow. Reagan got elected and they lost their funding. But it really could have been something that actually turned the ship around, you know, because mm-hmm. that's such an important point of intervention and you just don't want the separation of you know we're seeing it now with the you know access to wi-fi and internet computers and it's just you know my mom was doing important work but she got really frustrated and so she went back and she got the equivalent of a second phd and became trained as a psychoanalyst but oh wow okay stop there she couldn't just stop there so she had a practice and then she was on, became a teacher, of course, because she was always a teacher. And mm-hmm. so she joined the faculty of uh, the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies, which is in Greenwich Village. And then they have an, a, a, a center in Boston. She was on that faculty. And then she helped start a third center in Vermont uh, that got accredited. And so she was training people who were training and studying to be psychoanalysts, but she herself was a psychoanalyst. And in the beginning mm-hmm. of AIDS, she was running a therapy group for the people who were working at GMHC gay men's health crisis okay. in the, you know, the hotbed center of AIDS. She was running groups for the people that were, were giving support to the patients and their families. Wow. And so I'm Fascinating very proud work. of, 
Lorraine. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it's just so hard to see her now. Like, you know. I know. I, yeah, I, I can. I bring her a I, Diet Coke. And I, I, it was her favorite thing is always Diet Coke. So I always bring her a Diet Coke. <laughs> and every time she goes, what is this? And then she opens it up and I put the straw. And then she takes a zip. She goes, oh, Madeline, that is delicious. Like I invented oh. it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear about that. That is, yeah, I I know of someone right now, and again, I that's my I'm a clinical psychologist, so I can relate to what your um what your mom was doing in her background. And yeah, we I know of someone very close right now that's going through, and it's, their family's having a very rough time being able to like you know I'm seeing all these mild signs, and it's definitely progressed, and it's it's very tough. So I I'm sorry to hear so, that. Uh, it is. And especially, you know, she's like, she has these wonderful people are taking care of her. Uh, and, the, you know, they're changing her diaper. And I'm like, you don't know who she was. Like, what I know. she accomplished in her life. Ah. And my parents uh, in uh, the 80s bought a little place in Italy uh, that happened through me because of a friend of mine from high school. And I was working for Italian television, had done a semester abroad. Uh, mm-hmm. studying art history in Siena and I was uh, I was working for Italian TV at the time in New York and this thing this house literally kind of not literally but figuratively fell into our laps and my dad said I'm going to buy it and so they went on this adventure like you know living there under the Tuscan sun experience and we renovated the house it's little 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 but it's in a tiny medieval village like 20 minutes from Siena and it really was this fabulous thing in my parents' life where they would go for like, you know, two months, twice a year. And we would mm-hmm. go for like Christmas sometimes and they learned Italian. And now I have a house in Italy, which is kind of incredible because it's such an wow. important part of my life, you know, historically, emotionally, and obviously from a food perspective. Absolutely. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That sounds really interesting. I'm sure it's beautiful. Just the character and where you described it as being. That's awesome. Yeah. We just need so, Italy to really open up so we can go there again. Yeah. No, that would be great. That would be great. So let's, so thank you for sharing all that. And and real quickly, what did your, um, what did your dad do for a living? Because I know that, you know, it was, you guys took, okay, a, so, he took a sabbatical and that's when eventually we'll get into how, you know, that experience in Italy led to you, you know, really getting interested in, in food and cooking. Well, as I had mentioned, my parents were bohemians, right? My dad, they were living in apartments in New York in the early 50s that were like $25 a month. Uh, oh, my gosh. He, he was studying painting uh, with Hans Hoffman, who is abstract expressionist, and uh, had a, a painting school in Provincetown. Uh, Massachusetts on the Cape and uh, so all of my parents friends as I said before were artists and my dad but he didn't you know he dabbled uh, and definitely was always drawn to it and as I said I was an art history major uh, Mm -hmm. because of all the art that I had been shown my whole life both by friends of ours and in our home and then when we traveled Uh, but he was the dean of uh, the graduate school at uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, which when he went there was wow. New York College of Engineering, but he mm-hmm. grew the graduate program and then he made it his mission to reach out globally 
and locally and find people that would not be seen as mechanical engineers. And, you know, it's a very white male dominated, like everything mm-hmm. field. But my dad did outreach in the inner city of Newark. And, and then he, he had a student from Africa and one from China. Like he made it his mission to try to like open up mechanical engineering to a much more eco- socially, economically gender diverse world. And when he passed, uh, the one the, right before actually, the Daryl, a student of his, came to Los Angeles where we were living to see my father, and told me that he owed my father his entire career. Wow, that's amazing. So he wasn't, yeah. And so he then in the his last job in. Uh, engineering he went to Boston University and started the same thing a graduate program in mechanical engineering at BU okay. and uh, mm-hmm. that's when my mother started working in in Boston and then he finally retired but my mother pulled him into her uh, psychoanalysis thing and my get my dad just decided to start getting trained and he got certified as a psychoanalyst at the age of 79 Oh my gosh! Well, that that's amazing. And again, it's 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 an interesting parallel with you because it's at this stage in the game for you. And I'm not using age in an ageist way. By please don't take it that way. No. That you right that you have made this this pivot and this you know transition, so to speak. Um, I mean, it's just amazing. So. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as they say, right? <laughs> totally. They both actually pivoted. If you think of it, my mom, you know, at 54, went back to school and changed mm-hmm. and, you know, became a psychoanalyst. analyst. And my dad's 79. I mean, that's just ridiculous. But, yeah, and me, I did my pivot at 60. That's great. Which it, it is. It's very – if you had told me, you know, two years ago that I, this was going to be my life and I was going to be li- living in Seattle and, uh, <laughs> right. you know, have, doing a comedy cooking show from my kitchen, uh, I would have just said, yeah, you better go take a nap. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's do, well, thank you so much for, for giving all that, that background. I think that really sets the stage, so to speak, for where we're going to go. So, Again, just because I'm curious, reflecting back again as a little kid, because again, we're going to let's pull together, you know, your interest in producing. You definitely have an amazing sense of humor. I think, you know, personally, I think you could probably be a comedian if you put some stuff together. Um, And then also this passion for cooking. As a little kid, do you remember watching like any shows on TV or anything that got your interest in? I definitely remember watching Julia Child. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching Graham Care, the Galloping Gourmet. Okay. And okay. I remember just not being, you know, it was like just fascinating to me and highly entertaining. And interesting side note, Graham Care lives very close to me here and is actually the way that I got connected with my business partner, Sky Gleason, because he was making a documentary about Graham Care. And I had booked Graham on Letterman, so they interviewed me for it. Um, but I definitely remember that. I also remember, I mean, the, you know, food, my parents were kind of, they had spent a lot of time in Europe uh, and especially France. They were real like files and mm-hmm. uh, 
we always ate differently than anybody else I knew. Like we ate in a more European way. You always had the salad at the end of the meal. Okay. Um, and I was exposed to, I think, foods and things that others weren't. But then the real, you know, kind of turning point that was the, the you know, I always say if my move, if someone was making a movie of my life, this would mm-hmm. be the point where the, the soundtrack would swell and opera music would play. And, you know, it, we, my parent, my dad took a sabbatical in 1972. I was 12. And uh, he planned the most incredible seven-month trip through Europe. And we were based in France, and we bought a Renault, and we drove all over Italy, and we went, I mean, all over, yeah, we went to France, Italy, uh, Holland, Scandinavia, went to a, a cruise on the fjords. A month in Greece, we didn't go with Spain because Franco was in power, but we spent a month traveling around France uh, and were based in Paris where, you know, I I had goat cheese on a baguette and, you know, realized there was something out there that I hadn't had yet that Mm -hmm. was really good. And, uh, but we went to a, a place in Brittany uh, it was called Le Berge des Grands Roches, the Inn of the Big Rocks. And it was off-season, and we were the only people in the place. But they opened it up for us, and I remember the toilet water was blue, and that kind of freaked me out. But uh, <laughs> they, they had a, they, my dad planned all of our trips around art, history, and food. And so we went to Bath, and we went to, you know, shops, and we went to... Anywhere that there was a relic of antiquity, an incredible museum, or amazing food, we were there. And we combined them all. So uh, we were in Brittany, and I ordered something, and it was this Cairozan quail with with grapes. Mm-hmm. And it was just a little bird in a, a rich sauce made with brandy, cognac, and grapes. And I put it in my mouth. And my body chemistry just changed. It was like I never would look at my life or food or the intersection of my life and food again in the same way because I realized that human beings could do something to wrong ingredients that could cause this experience to happen inside of somebody's head. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to be a part of it. And so from literally that moment on, food became like, probably an unhealthy focal point in my life and not you know it was never unhealthy it's totally joyful and right. I started cooking and my my parents got me this cookbook that when we got back called the young friend chef and I made my way through every recipe in that book and then I just never stopped and I I would you know would cook food for myself when I was in high school it, I just played with stuff and I, I completely self-taught but I would just you know, get cookbooks and cook recipes. And uh, when I went to college and lived off campus, I went, I did my semester abroad in Siena. I was an art history major and I lived with a family and the mother woke up every morning at five to start the sauce for lunch. 
Okay. And I had an Italian boyfriend, and he was a medical student who was living in a house in the, in the historic center of Siena. And I went there for dinner every night. So I had both the really elaborate, like, pull out of the stop, make the tortellini, like, that Sunday lunch in Italy thing from my mama Bruna. And then instead, when the, the guys in the house, I learned how to make, like, penne alla arrabbiata, just the sauces that you make while the water is boiling. That wow. That is super simple and so delicious. And that was really the foundation of my next step in my cooking journey. Okay. And when I got back from uh, m- from Italy, my roommate Jill uh, Gerla and I uh, started cooking together. And I would teach her how to make like a bolognese, and she would teach me to make tangine because her family was Moroccan. And oh, interesting. Okay. We would just cook together. And when I I'm jumping ahead, but when I had to make lobster, I mean, matzo balls on the Today Show uh, just a couple of months ago, times with Jill, and she taught me. Because I committed to making them, and I had never made them before, but okay. my grandmother made amazing ones. So I just said, Jill, come on. And so we FaceTimed together, and she, uh, I practiced. I made like 10 sets before I got on the show, and the first ones were really bad, and then they got better and better and better. But finally... I achieved fluffiness and everything was right. With yeah, well, I wanted to that I real quick. I have to interrupt you for a second because that was the one I was going to bring up later when I start to get into Matt in the Kitchen and the, your show was I was watching that we'll a few that. days ago and I just Madeline I busted out laughing because it reminded when you just you were so like innocent and it was like so unassuming when you're talking with Hoda and Jenner and you're like. Yeah, you know, you're talking about the foundation of the balls and how you want to make them fluffy and hand, and I was just dying. It was so funny. It was my sweaty balls moment, and I did not <laughs> see it coming, Carrie. I was so concentrating I on know. the technique of making balls. And also what you're going to know is when you do the Today Show, when you cook on the Today Show, you have four and a half minutes. And they I know. tell you. We want to see this. We want to see this, like, which stages. So you have to make, like, six different iterations of what you're making. You need the raw materials. You need it partially done. You need the middle stage. And then you need a finished product. And, uh-huh. you, and you're talking and trying to be funny. And then they're saying, pull out the finished product and it's over. So I was so concentrating myself <laughs> on the, the choreography of this segment and the, the food itself that I never thought that I would be saying balls a hundred times in four and a half minutes. And every right, time it, it came out of my mouth, it was ahead. so funny. But it really yeah. caught me unaware. Right, and that's what I loved about it, because it was not something you planned, and it was not just what saying the word balls. It was just the different adjectives you used around it and how you, it was, and they loved it too. It was just, it was such a great moment. So anyway, so I, oh, we put that I in there. So I don't like, bring it up know, later. I heard Hoda in my ear, just like cracking up. <laughs> and it was like, you got to decide, do you want your balls small and hard or big and fluffy? You have to be careful not to handle your balls too much. I mean, just was like, Oh my God. Like, I felt so set up, but it was hilarious. No, it was a great moment. And I don't know if you remember. I mean, 
I remember, and again, it's it's sad because I should get back into it because I just I love comedy. I use it as a coping mechanism. Um, I do remember, and it was a Saturday Night Live bit. I mean, it's you know we're talking a long time ago, but sweaty it balls. Was with, That's it. it well, no, it's only Alex balls. Baldwin. It was a holiday yeah, episode. Yeah. And, is that it? Yeah, it's a holiday yeah. episode, and his name is Sweaty, <laughs> and he brings the treat that they serve, and it's like a, it's like an NPR kind of like local public radio yes. show. Yes, and, yes, yeah. And Anna Gasteyer and um, I forgot the other one, but Molly they Shannon. are so sincere. Molly Shannon, and they're so yes. sincere, and they're just you know it's all about can be fear <laughs> balls, you know, and they, they're the Sweaty balls because his name is Sweaty, and. Right. Uh, it's a classic. That's what I was saying. I totally created my own sweaty ball yeah, no, it's, inadvertently, it's, totally right. innocently. Right. So anyway, I just, I wanted to let you know, I love that moment. It was, I think it was one of the first ones. I was watching another one with you and um, several people last night with um, Andrew Gruel. Um, you guys were making, I think it was, hold on a second, lobster. Lobster grilled cheese. grilled cheese with everything. Yeah, I was sauce. watching that one last night. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And and real quick, and then I want to get back to your history so we can start to build up to get into that in the TV. I loved when you guys were also taking, um, it was hysterical, shots of pickle juice. That was just, like, so funny. Wasn't that hilarious? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, man. It really okay. was funny. Really good stuff. Okay, so, so interestingly, um, as you said, you're really getting involved in cooking, you know, prior to going to college and then even in college, just, just as a quick question, did you ever think of dropping out of college and going to just a specific, you know, a specialized cooking school or something? Um, no, and what I did, never did. I never no? did. Okay. It was always for me something that was just a passion, but you know, I didn't feel like I wanted to go to culinary school. I felt like I loved food. It was a huge part of my life. Uh, you know, I gave incredible dinner parties. Uh, mm-hmm. Once we all stopped going to clubs in the 80s in New York. Uh, but it was always just sort of, you know, it was in the sidelines. It was not the sensual focus mm-hmm. of my life. But it, I would have flirtations with it. Um, but you tell me, I, I, want, I don't want to step ahead, but this has no, to okay. do with, uh, yeah, um, so what, okay, when yes. I got, I, oh, I, I always God. wanted to be in film or TV, but I felt that I didn't have the connection because, you know, my, my parents weren't in the industry and I had this idea that you couldn't get in unless you knew somebody. And okay. I, uh, I didn't. I but so when I first got to college at SUNY Binghamton, yep. uh, I thought I would do film. But their film program, in retrospect, was wonderful. But for me, it wasn't what I was looking for. It was very experimental, and I was too young probably to appreciate the beauty of the experimental film. I really just wanted movies, and uh, so. I ended up taking an art history 101 class when I still was, you know, declared as a film major. And mm-hmm. as soon as the lights went down, it was introduction to art and they started showing the slides. I was like, Oh my God, I, I think I was annoying to the other people in the class, Gary, cause I was going, Oh my God, I've been there. Oh my God, I've seen that. Oh my God, I know that. Oh my God, we were there. Oh my God, I got a sunburn there. Oh my God. But that's where we, it's possible. Like, 
I had a personal experience with like every single part of art from growing up in New York and going to every museum and from being in Europe and being in every museum and every church and every monument and being in Greece. And we went literally like we went to Delphi, we went to Mycenae, we went, my mother read us the Odyssey as we were on boats going around Greece to every place that wow. Odysseus visited. Okay. And so when I got to art history, something in me just woke up and was like, I'm going to, this is a major. I mean, I'm, I'm going to four zero already. Let's go. So I switched over to art history and then I ended up going to Italy, which was perfect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, was in Siena, but all Rome, the Venice, everywhere. We just traveled and Florence, of course, a hundred times. And so that was all in me. And I became an art history major and I did my semester abroad, came back and cooked with Jill, sort of tying the story together mm-hmm. and then ended up getting a job working for Italian TV in New right. York. Because and real, real I, quick, so, just if you can just like rest for one second, yeah. was there anything as a kid that made you want to get involved in film and, and potentially TV? Can you just pull some pieces in there? Like, were there certain movies you watched? Yes, or... I will. Okay. Yeah, here you go. So when I was in fourth grade, I was nine, and I, for like three weeks, pretended I was sick, and I would hold the uh, thermometer up to a light bulb, but then I would shake it down and give myself 101 <laughs> and uh, stay home so I could watch the Dick Van Dyke show. Okay. There there was a block on TV in the local Channel 11, which had, uh, like, I Dream of Jeannie, uh, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, uh, Bewitched, and the Dick Van Dyke show. It had I Love Lucy too. It was just the most amazing block of TV. And I mm-hmm. got so into it that I continued to like not want to go to school. And my mom said, I knew you weren't sick. I knew something was going on. It just was giving you some time to whatever. And what she didn't realize was I wanted to be Rosemary. Like I watched the Dick Van Dyke show and it was about a late night talk show and it was I love Mary Tyler Moore, and I had a crush on Dick Van Dyke, on Rob Tetry, and it. What we didn't know was at that moment I was seeing what would be my future, which was I would basically live inside the Dick Van Dyke show because I would become a part of a you know a, a right. of right. talk shows for thirty friggin' years. <laughs> Wow. No, thank you for sharing that and tying that in because I didn't, yeah, I didn't read about that anywhere else. I would have brought that up, but wow. Okay. So, yeah, so so continue with the story of, like you said, the art history. Um, and then, okay, so what I did do, you plan? I'm, I'm working. So... Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I had, I had no plans of what to do with my major. It was really just a major. It was a okay. great uh, liberal arts major. It was writing. It was history. It was beautiful works of art and you know I dabbled in writing a couple of art reviews but I didn't that wasn't really where I was going it was just a, an excuse to get through college because I you know the film program wasn't what I'd been looking for and so 
I feel like it was just a great basis. I'm a big fan of just the liberal arts education for the sake of the liberal arts education. I think mm-hmm. it's a, a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful thing that makes your life better because you see the world through educated prism and the, the writing especially and all the things you get to see and read. And I'd go back and go to college again right now if I could figure out, you know, a way to make that work. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it would be the same. But so I'm in, I'm living in New York, uh, and I'm working for Radio Televisione Italiana, which is uh, Italian national television, but it's the New York Bureau, and it's like a little outpost of Italy. And uh, I start hearing rumblings about this new show that's on at 12.30 at night, and it's called <laughs> Late Night with David Letterman, and everybody is talking about it. But in those days, we couldn't, like, we didn't even have DVRs yet, I don't think. Right. Like, if you wanted to see it, you had to stay up. It wasn't like the clips were going to be on your phone the next morning. That hadn't come yet. So I stay up late, and I watch Late Night with David Letterman, and it's not an entertainment experience for me. It's a calling. I mm-hmm. see Dave, and I see the show, and I think I need to be a part of this. Like, I really do. And so then I think of all these schemes and I, I get tickets for the show and I go see it live. And I would see my future boss, Morty, Robert Morton, on the floor of the set. And I would think, I want to be him. And he was a segment producer at the time. So I actually would be him. And I always joke that later on I'd go, that's what you wish for? Be more <laughs> like if you, you knew you had that much power, you could have wished to be Dave. Like why did you want Morty? Aww. You could have wished for anything. It was gonna come true. But uh so I I wanted to work there so badly and uh I went to lunch with a British friend of mine named Remy Blumenfeld, who was a reporter on the local uh channel eleven news. And he he said, okay, we're going to play a game. If you could have your dream job, what would it be? And I said, without missing a breath, I would work for David Letterman. And Remy said, oh, we're my good friend Darcy works there and blah, blah, blah. And so he connects me with Darcy. I call Darcy and I go, hi, Darcy. I'm Helen Smithberg. I'm Remy Blumenfeld's friend. And uh, I really want to work for Lee Night with David Letterman. And she said, well, Madeline, I can't help you. Uh, I can't oh. recommend you if I don't know you. And I'm leaving because I'm moving to California, and I am getting married. Goodbye. So oh, I, I was a little bit crestfallen. Mm-hmm. I think I sent two more resumes in. Nothing happened. And then I ended up accepting this job where I would be the United States Bureau, essentially me, for a six-hour live show done every Sunday out of Rome called Dominica Inn, which means Sunday at home. And okay. there were 150 people working in Rome, and there was me in New York covering all of the United States, and they were obsessed with the United States. So I was, I was interviewing celebrities at press junkets and hosting them for satellites. I was at the Custer Battlefield. They sent me to the Oscars. I was on Jacques Cousteau's boat in Norfolk, Virginia, with Gina Lola Brigida. And it was kind of amazing. And in that time, I met 
Sam Packard. Mm-hmm. Met Sam Packard at an art opening for Robert De Niro Sr. Robert De Niro's father is a painter and was friends with my parents from the Hoffman School in Provincetown. So I got invited to this opening, and Sam had another complicated situation that got him there, which is just really weird to me, uh, Mm because Robert De Niro has been this sort of motif in my life, because I'm in Taxi Driver. I was on a date in Central Park when I was 15, and I'm in Taxi Driver. I'm standing behind him when he has the mohawk. Oh, wow. Okay. And my parents and my parents were friends with his dad, who came to my parents' 25th wedding anniversary party. And I did an interview with him for Italian TV, where he came to where uh, the Italian host, Johnny Mina, came to New York for three days. And I basically spent three days with Robert De Niro, and including going to the Area Club and Heartbreak and having dinner with Joe Pesci and Harvey Keitel and going to visit Martin. Scorsese on the set of After Hours and meeting Griffin Dunn, like crazy, crazy Robert De Niro thing in my world. And so here I am at the opening of his dad's painting, and I see the cutest guy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and we start talking, and uh, he gives, I give him my number. Apparently, my best friend Elise gave him her number too. Okay. And uh, <laughs> but he, he called me. And uh, we started dating. And in the beginning, he was like, yeah, I just got out of a relationship. And then the challenger exploded. And I remember him going, let's do this model. Let's go up in a blaze of glory like the challenger. And, and, you know, we fell in love. And we were madly in love for nine months. And the last show of, uh, of Dominica Inn, they invited us to come be in the studio for the show and come to the party. And uh, so we went and we had this incredible trip. We were flown business class and put up in the Rome Hilton. And then the host of the show gave us his house on the Mediterranean Sea for five days. And we had this like crazy, delicious, we still remember walking up the hill and having pasta with like Langu's big giant shrimp and white wine and uh then I stayed in Italy uh because mm-hmm. my season was over and uh Sam had to go back to work he was an architect in Manhattan and okay. there was once again phone calls were a million dollars there was no email there was no like right texting there was no Skype or you know WhatsApp or any of that stuff so I went with my parents to help renovate the house in uh, Tuscany and Sam went home and I was getting him presents and thinking about him and dreaming about him and really feeling finally like happy. I'd had a horrible time with Vance in my twenties and uh, this was hopefully the end of it. And I'd met the man of my dream. I get back from my two weeks. He's not at the airport. I'm thinking that's weird. I go home mm-hmm. to my apartment on Christopher Street with my roommate Susanna, and I see a piece of paper on her, uh, on my bed in her mother's handwriting, but I don't read it. I pick up the phone, which is attached to the wall just to carve and take the story, and I call <laughs> Sam, and uh, I get a pause, which right off the bat, not good, and uh-huh. then I get Madeline, we have to talk, 
And I say, what the fuck? He said, yeah, I'm back with Fran, who had been the girlfriend he had broken up with. And that's all I remember that conversation because the phone fell out of my hand and it went slow motion around, Mm -hmm. spiraled down toward the floor and the room was spinning. And I felt like I didn't know if I was going to, you know, have a heart attack or throw up. And something made me look at the piece of paper in my hand and it Mm -hmm. said, call Darcy about a job at Letterman. Wow. I had this... I had a moment where my heart was broken and my dreams came true in the exact same nanosecond. And and I and never processed. Go ahead. I never processed the loss of Sam because I dove right into the process of getting the job at Letterman, which was like I pitched like 90 ideas and then I had an interview with Dave himself and then they called me up and go, we don't know what you did in there, but you said I started my job and I just, went into my career, you know, right. like, I, and then the chefs started coming on and, you know, everything would take off from there. At what point do you want me to give the punchline of the Sam story? Um, um, well, why don't we, yeah, I love, I wanted to let you know, I wanted to pull this in when you were talking about the Sam story, because, you know, like you said, it was this devastation, but at the same time, it was this like unbelievable opportunity, this thing that you'd been, you know, waiting for, and you describe it as an emotional rainbow. And I thought that was just such a cool and just interesting way to capture that. And I'm like, you got to coin that term. I'm like, that's, that's a uh, Madeline. Right. Term. <laughs> it was an emotional rainbow. Because it, yeah. the sun was out and it was raining and you got a rainbow. And it was really, I've never had a moment like that. Most people don't get them in their lives. That right. two such extreme uh, emotional experiences happen inside the same moment mm-hmm. where you, you end up, like, I also say it was just a wash. Like, I, guess I've been, I should have been so excited about the Letterman thing. But I was so devastated that I couldn't really feel the joy. And yet I should have been so devastated by the Sam dumping me that I, I you know, I couldn't right. really feel that devastation because I was so happy about the words on the page. <laughs> no, I mean, that's just, I mean, like you said, it's just, it's heartbreaking. But at the same moment, it's just this like unbelievable moment that, oh my gosh, my dreams are going to come true. I, it's just crazy. And they so, did. I mean, it, I know. I describe my time as Letterman as my, uh, my um, graduate school mm-hmm. because you do not make mistakes there. It's just like not even within the realm of what people can think about of what you could allow to happen. And it's, it's an intense environment, but I, you know, when I think of my friends from Letterman, they are like, it's like people, you're war buddies, you know, that you're right. doing that much television in a week with the standards as high as they were. But I had such a special little place in it. Because I was booking all what's called the human interest. So it's the non-celebrity guests, not stupid Patrick or stupid human tricks. That's its own thing. People submit and they get booked. Mine was I had to, without the internet, right. scour the country for, pe- for, pe- right? for people that have How do you uh, do that? And yeah, that was one of my questions. Is, would you write letters? Like I how... read, well, you made phone calls, but you, right. I read 35 local papers a day. Oh my, my office gosh. was a 
cry for help. It looks like a hoarder's office because 35 <laughs> local papers a day, plus, you know, Texas Magazine, Yankee Magazine, all these, like, regional magazines. I was in touch with every convention center, fair. I scouted at state fairs. I went to the Texas State Fair, and I brought back border collies herding sheep. I went to the Ohio State Fair, and I brought back the world's largest bull and a butter statue of Bobby Rahal. I, you know, like, I was out there, and then I, I, I uh, would call every single NBC affiliate and talk to their features reporters. Mm-hmm. And then I, there were, like, quirky local features reporters. There's a guy in California named Jules Hauser. There was a guy named George Chickarone in, like, Georgia. And they became, like, my sort of, like, stringers. And they would send me things. And so I got the B people. It was a father and daughter that believed in the power of honey, although they were both. She was in a wheelchair. I mean, and they he had glued together an actual beehive and brought it on the plane. I had to get a seat for the beehive. Um, oh, my gosh. It was, yeah. And... So there had been like torium on cooking segments. I got in at like year three, so I I the Letterman show was still under the radar enough to be awesome and cool and and we you know we went to baseball games with Dave and stuff that would never have happened later. But um, but there had been a path that I wasn't there for, but I just jumped right in and. Uh, was trying to find my whole thing that I lived to find with demos. Okay, so that's a demonstration. So that would be kid inventors or the Bill Nye the Science Guy. I discovered I found him. He actually comes from here in Seattle, and, and uh, it would be a guy with a collection of shoes of celebrities. It was a podiatrist. It would be a woman with a collection of potato chips. It was Bev Tanner, the amazing baking lady from Boise, Idaho, who just never stopped talking. Wow. So I would find these characters that could come on and do something with Dave. I booked Jack Hanna from the Columbus Zoo. I booked uh, Kmart the Magician was mine, uh, which was just a story in and of itself. One night he set Dave's head on fire. But somewhere <laughs> in there, one day we had a guest fall out. Somebody got sick. We needed a guest. So... Uh, I got this, there was a, a bulletin that we got copies of every day. It was called Celebrity Service. And it would tell you where the celebrities were and what shows they were doing and who their publicists were. It was a subscribe, you subscribe to it. Okay. So I looked at Celebrity Service and I saw that Wolfgang Puck had been on Good Morning America. So I called Good Morning America and I got to the booker and I said, well, you know, do you know where he's staying? She goes, oh, he does his own hotel. I don't know where he is. So I called like five hotels and I got him. I got awesome. Puck on the phone. And he came on at, you know, he came in at two in the afternoon to be on the show that night. And the segment was so great that all of a sudden the floodgates were open and I could book chef. So wow. here is me, the foodie. And I am, first of all, I can eat in any restaurant in New York for free. And mm-hmm. they will pull out all the stuff. So my uh, my ex-husband and I were eating at Le Cirque, and the, the doors kept slinging open, and a parade of waiters would come out and lay things at my on our table, so much so that the man at the next table asked the maitre d' who I was. That man was Henry <laughs> Kissinger. Oh, my he was gosh. Like, who is she? She's getting better service than me. 
Uh, <laughs> so I could go to any restaurant. I could, and I was booking all these chefs. And when they would come on, I would be producing the segments backstage, which was, in essence, private one-on-one cooking lessons from the top chefs and cooks in the That's world. That's incredible. So I got to work with Julia Child and got to become friends with Julia Child. I wow. got to, you know, Wolfgang Puck is a buddy, David Boulay, Danielle Buzou. Uh They all became my friends. Uh, and, and I learned from them. And I learned how to roast a chicken from Pierre Frenet, the 60-second gourmet in the New York Times, and I still use this technique. And it was awesome. So somewhere in there, I had an idea for a TV show. And it, what mm-hmm. it basically was, was it was called Offbeat America. And essentially, it was the people that I would book on Letterman, but the ones that couldn't travel. So the main I- inspiration for that show was this woman named Frances Gabe. And Frances Gabe had spent her entire adult life uh, trying to create a self-cleaning house, which was incredibly impractical. So all the floors were slanted, and there were, like, spigots that came out of the walls, and everything was coated in plastic. And uh, it was just, like, the most impractical thing in the world, but she was so committed to it that I loved it. And uh, so based on her, I came up with this show idea, with my friend Elise, who's still my best friend, Elise Roth. And uh, I, we were going to develop it, and I didn't want Dave to hear about me shopping a show. So I went to his manager, this wonderful man named Jack Rollins, who was Woody Allen's manager. Okay. And Jack Rollins, was, he's, he's in Broadway, Danny Rose. He's just an archetypical New York manager. He was always betting on the ponies. He was always smoking a cigar. But just, like, <laughs> the most lovely human. And I said, Jack, I just, you know, I don't want Dave to hear it from anyone but me. I've got an idea for a show, and I'm going to be, you know, pitching it. And he said, well, would you want David to be your uh, executive producer? And I was like, "Um, yes. So Dave Letterman (laughs) came on as the executive producer, and in an elevator in NBC, Jack Rollins sold the show to Fox. NBC had passed. But Jack Rollins sold it to a guy named Garth Anseer, who later would hire me and move me to California for the, he, Garth just always seemed to show up at these pivotal moments in my life. But uh, we bought it and we had a celebratory dinner at Seasons in New York. I remember I had duck with cherry, which is connected back to the quail with grapes. Mm-hmm. You see a theme? It's sweet and savory. Yeah. And sweet and savory <laughs> is also the theme of my story, right? Like, I just, I just realized that the second, Jerry. Nice. Um, there you go. But, Your aha uh, moment. <laughs> amazing. I mean, my sweet and savory could be the title of my book. Um, there you go. But, uh, so, so, but then it fell apart because they signed with Monikovitz at CAA and they didn't want him to be at all, uh, you know, beholden to NBC and the contract negotiation. And so my show never happened. But based on that absolutely unrealistic experience of, oh, my God, it's so easy to get a show on TV. You just, you know, come up with an idea. And then Jack Rollins gets in an elevator with, uh, you know, Garth and Sierra. And next thing you know, you're at the Four Seasons. Elise, who was also a foodie, we were both into food and cooking, said, we got to start a company and we need to do funny content about Mm -hmm. food and around food 
So I retired the same night as Johnny Carson. May, like, 12, 1992. Anyway, I left Letterman on amazing terms. And Elise and I started Half Baked Productions in her apartment. And we shot a pilot called Eating New York. Now, Mm -hmm. that pilot, our DP was a guy named Phil Abraham, who's the husband of a, a dear friend of mine who just bought a camera. He shot it. He would become the DP on The Sopranos and eventually the director and the director on Mad Men. Like this guy is on, he's he's a superstar director. He directed my pilot. Uh, Kevin Kay was the writer. Kevin would go on to be like head of Nickelodeon, head of the Paramount Network. Uh, He he was a cue card guy on Letterman. So, and Tukey Smith was our host. Anyway, we did this really, really wonderful pilot. And it ended up on the desk of a woman named Eileen Katz, who was running original programming for MTV. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was also a foodie. So she had a stack of three-quarter-inch cassettes on her desk, and she thought, ooh, eating New York. And she watched it, and then she saw the, you know, the information inside and saw, late, you know, six years late night with David Letterman. And she was like, "Uh, come in here right now. So we met with Eileen. (laughs) And right. basically, she she said, uh, you know, I have a comedian in the basement. We're going to do a late night talk show, and I want you to meet him. So she called down to the basement, and up comes very young John Stewart, mm-hmm. and we <laughs> fall into professional love. And my, I say bye bye to my like food TV intersection, and I produced the John Stewart show on MTV. We did two seasons, and then we got syndicated by Paramount. And then we died a terrible death, and then I got recruited by Doug Herzog, who had been at MTV with Eileen Katz, to come and create a daily show for Comedy Central, which I turned right. down for nine months. Right. And finally Inter- said wait, wait, yes, wait. and Liz was... Interesting, nine months. What is that, what is that symbolic of? It's a gestation period, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> from, ready. And well, the irony from... of why I turned it down, wait, you're going to die. The okay. irony of why I turned it down was because I was trying to get pregnant. Oh, right. I and I, yeah, I know you I were having a lot of hard. challenges. Oh. Yeah. I had tons of challenges. I failed in vitro, all of that stuff. But I'm sorry. Uh, but you had not realized the nine-month thing. It seemed to be a cycle for me. But I eventually, we had so Liz and Elise and I had sold a different show to Comedy Central, and they had us in a development deal in their offices and later they would tell me, we just wanted you around. They would bring me to focus groups. And uh, so one day while we're doing the other show and I'm walking down the hall and Doug corners me as he does periodically. And he goes, Madeline, what are you doing? You're in there developing a show I can't afford to make. You need to do daily show for me. It's the job you were born to do. I'm going to put all of my production budget in it, all of my marketing. You don't have to do a pilot, Madeline. I'll put, I'll keep it on the air for a year. And I just looked at him and I go, okay. And I walked into the office where Liz and Elise were. And I go, girls, the plan is changing. And mm-hmm. I got a lot of pushback. But then I, when I explained that we didn't have to do a pilot and the show would be on for a year, the pushback stopped. And we took all the cards down and started putting new ones up and created the Daily Show. 
Fantastic. I mean, just just incredible. And in the meantime, Poland, when, you know, eventually things did work out and you do have a son, right, Harry? Yes, when I does... adopted Harry when he was, when he was, he was born September 1st, 1997, the day after uh, Princess Diana died. And I think okay. he has some of her spirit. Like, he's just such a special boy. But... We went to Texas and, you know, drove to Texarkana at two in the morning. There he was, like, in a dresser drawer, and I had a baby. And from that moment on, it wasn't like any of the pain and the disappointment. It just all went away in that second. It was really weird. It was, like, totally obliterated all of the frustration I was having with the infertility. And, then all, and you know, all my friends were getting pregnant. I was just, like... Mm-hmm. I had to throw a baby shower for my friend Susanna right after the beginning of my my first round of in vitro when you have to take this drug that basically puts your body through menopause and it's not pleasant and it's called Danazol and I was like, you know, hanging up shower caps and balloons <sighs> and in the midst, I mean, it's just like terrible. But I have Harry and Harry just graduated from college and Harry has a job and... uh and he's the greatest, and we're just, we have a, such a wonderful and special relationship. He's just my running That's buddy. Awesome. We love we love being together, and we share comedy and music, and he has, like, he loves to sing, and so we drive around, and he plays DJ, and we sing at the top of our lungs. <laughs> and he, he's, yeah, he's just he's super special. And, That's uh, wonderful. Love of my life. Wonderful. Yeah. So that worked Aww. out, and uh, yeah, and then somewhere in there, uh, so I'm sorry, getting back left. to yeah, I just wanted to throw that in since that was part of where we were, you know, when you were having the challenge. Yeah, no, no, um, good, good. Yeah, do you have a timeline up on the wall or something? No, um, <laughs> no. The, the, so Craig Kilborn was the original host of the Daily Show, yeah. and then he got hired by CBS, actually by Worldwide Pants, David Letterman's company, to do. The 12:30 show uh, out of um, LA, and um, I get a call. I'm renovating the studio. It's really exciting. It's like my dream. We've got a building for the Daily Show and has a studio attached to it. And I'm, you know, designing my stage. And in the middle of like there was the set designer. I get a call and it's Rob Burnett who uh, mm-hmm. was the executive producer of, of uh, Dave's show, but also ran Worldwide Pants. And he says, uh, can you come over here and meet with Dave? And now I knew, Craig had told me that he was going to CBS. And I think Craig, you know, so I, I, had, to, I had to pretend I didn't know. Okay. But I go there and Dave, you know, smoking a cigar, baseball cap, glasses, the whole thing. And uh, he goes, and he says, you know, we're just so proud of you. We loved you here, Aww. and you did great work. And uh, you went off, and you've created something totally new. And we want to give you the Late Late Show. And I said, oh, I was gosh. like, excuse me. They go, yeah, it's your show. Like we've hired a guy, but if he doesn't work out, you can hire someone else. It's really you. I want we want you to create the format. Did Harry and the job in L.A. Oh, and gosh. I don't know what the – my parents are upset because I was looking at a co-op on the Upper West Side as opposed to Chelsea, which is like, you know, 15-minute subway ride. 
the mother was like, no, don't take him away from us because I lived four blocks Aww. from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what do I do? I call my buddy, John Stewart, and I go, well, what do I do? And he goes, okay. <laughs> He's very, like, practical in this. He goes, okay, okay, let's talk this through. Uh, are you proud of The Daily Show? And I go, yeah. I feel like we've really, you know, created a new format, a, a, a way to, you know, do topical humor that no one's ever done before. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm so proud of it. He goes, do you like the people you work with? I go, I love them. Are you excited to come to work in the morning? I go, yes. I'm always, like, running in to see what's in the news. And, uh, and, and these people in my family. And he said that in the process of talking to me, he convinced himself to do it. He was like, I should go be the host of The Daily Show. He was always on the short list. They'd asked him the first time, but he wasn't ready. And right. So wow. it, it was like, you know, everything came together. And now John mm-hmm. came on and then The Daily Show became what it became. Incredible. And, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And as that starts to happen, you start to, again, get another bunch of people there basically start with their phenomenal careers. Yeah. No, I personally either hired Stephen Colbert. I just hired. I got sent a tape Mm -hmm. uh, by a guy named Mike August, who was an agent at William Morris, and I popped it in and I saw some clips of Colbert on the very short-lived Dana Carvey show. And I said, yeah, can he come tomorrow? And then six weeks later, Colbert was killing it. I called back the agent and I said, do you have another one? Like, you're going to think this is absurd. He goes, yeah, go back to the clip you like. It was a sketch called Waiters Who Are Nauseated by Food. It was just brilliant. And he goes, the (laughs) other waiter, that's Steve Carell. That's his son. Hired him. I hired Mo Rocca. He came in pitching a show about going to every president's house. Uh, in America, and I go, yep, let's go. Uh, I When we brought in for auditions, we hired both Ed Helms and Rob Corddry in the same moment, and uh, I liked both of them a lot, but I thought Ed Helms was like a movie star and funny, and I, John didn't like him, and so we finally compromised that we would hire both of them. Okay. But okay. Ed Helms does not know that he literally owes me his career. And the only (laughs) one that's ever been at all appreciative, and it's not just the famous people, producers and writers and, you know, that also have had, like, incredible careers. And, uh, but the only one that's been gracious was when I was in New York, like, four years ago doing National Geographic Explorer. I, my friend Allison Watson works for Samantha Beam was across the street and I went to visit Allie, Allie Watt as I call her and she said have you ever met Sam and I said you know what no and took me in her office Sam, Samantha Beam got down on her knees and Aww. literally genuflected and said I owe you my career she's the only and, one the rest oh, of and them just, um, are ungrateful motherfuckers ungrateful oh motherfuckers really what about, so wait, yeah. how did you, just give me a little background on Samantha Bay. How, what, did she, was she part of Stuart? I just, and I don't know the whole history of she was the on Daily the, Show. She was on uh, the Daily Show. Yeah, okay. she gotcha. got launched out off of the Daily Show. Also, okay. 
So even though I didn't directly hire her, I created the thing that she, she launched did. her career from. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the, That's... the rest of them are just, just ungrateful. Ah, that is just so heartbreaking to hear. And I mean, again, I'm not going to yeah. talk about myself on the air, but I think something I just, again, that I love about you and that I've always had in myself is just you are just so grounded and authentic and genuine. And, you know, I joke around, I'm like, you're coming on my show and I'm not, I'm not Rolling Stone or David Letterman, but I was just so appreciative that you would take the time, you know, to come on my show, which is something I'm developing all on my own and I don't have any help. And so I do understand when you give people that support to launch that. I mean, oh my gosh, I'd be indebted to you forever. <laughs> right. No, you yeah. would. And it's interesting because there just was this, this story of late night on CNN. Bill Carter yes, did I want to a watch series. And, yeah, and there's a, Jen Flans is the, now the executive producer of uh, The Daily Show. And she actually reached out to me and just you know, sort of sent me an email hug because she realizes, you know, she's been there now 25 years. She was a, like a you know, PA. She was an associate producer, I think, when right. she first started. So it's like, you know, creating careers, but also creating livelihoods and lives for so many people. Yeah. And if you go through show business and sort of pick people out, they, like so many of my former assistants or researchers are just like the highest heights in the world. And the you can tell the the jerks from the good people like it's really mm-hmm. like a way of sorting human beings into two mm-hmm. piles and you know Jill Lederman was she was the showrunner of Kimmel for like 16 years I got her her job on Letterman when she left when the John Stewart show went down I hired her right out of college and she is just like you are my mentor I owe everything to you and she's like you know she's yeah. an angel and yeah. then you feel happy that what you did when I feel like, when I think of sort of like the Ed Helms of it all, I'm just like, you entitled motherfucker. Like, really? So just what would it take for you to one day, like, just send me a note that yeah. says Madeline, but he, there, there would never be that. Oh, that's and just Colbert. So- he better do my show when I get a show show. <laughs> he better be cooking absolutely. with me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you're you're getting there and you will be there. I, I have no doubt in my mind. Um, but, yeah, you, you hope that. But I do believe, you know, Madeline, even though it's so frustrating and devastating and I can understand how you feel, at the same time, don't you think karma comes around in certain ways? And I think that what you're doing now and just – you know, just all the hard work and the effort you put in, like I said at the beginning of the show, and the grit and your resiliency. I think hopefully that inside of you also makes you feel Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I'm great. fine. I'm I know. Fine. But, I'm, I'm, yeah. It's just we're talking about it now. It's not like I wake up in the morning going, fuck you, Ed Elms. Right, <laughs> like, right. <laughs> that, would be, that would be really stupid. No, I know. That would be a really bad decision on my part because uh, – no, it's just we're talking about it now, and, uh, you know, it, it, there definitely is a sore yeah. spot in there, but it's not one sure. that clouds my entire existence. Right. <laughs> like I'm singing in the car with my son and having a perfect moment and then just going, 
God damn you, Stephen. No, it doesn't happen like that at all. No, I know, but still, it, it just it, it it creeps in at times, and I can, like I said, in a different facet, anyone in my life that you know, whether it's an intern coming on that I'm training, um, you know, I can talk off the air. I'm not going to get into it here, but I I do a lot of forensic and clinical work, but I am always going to go out of my way for that person because I know personally how I felt when people have not been there for me or have doubted me, and I'm like, I'm never going to be that person. I will always be. That helper, I that's going to help. At my college, like, you know, I always help. I always, right. I, now the, the sign that I have on my set that says Mad in the Kitchen, a woman reached out, called to me and said her 10-year-old daughter is really into food. She's having a horrible time. She's supposed to be a freshman in high school. And now she's home with COVID. And would you just talk to her? Oh. And I was like, of course. So that's I talked awesome. to her next thing I know. They brought me the most amazing salmon from Alaska. Her husband's a fisherman. And then they made me this. She had her husband. He also makes the signs, creates a sign for me. I'm like, oh, that's if she's cool. going to come be an intern. Like, I say yes to all of it. Because, mm-hmm. To anyone that asks, because I exactly what you're saying, I want the karma. Yeah. I, but it's yeah. not like I'm doing it for myself. It's just like. Of course you do the right thing. Of course you do the good thing. Of course you help the person. Right. Of course you, you know, share what you can. Like, wh- why would you not? Like, that's just weird. Well, like you said, because people are put into a couple of different categories, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I hate to say it. I mean, and again, we'll get off this real quick because I want to get back into just some of the other stuff you did and then dive into your reconnection with Sam and Matt in the kitchen. But, you know, I, I have to say, like, I think comedy for me personally, I have a very kind of dark self-deprecating sense of humor. So when something like when someone is nasty to me, I do reframe it and I do make some type of a little bit out of it. And sometimes when I tell people, they're like, but that's pretty sad. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But either I can just wallow in how sad it is, or maybe I can try to make some type of a, Larry David Seinfeld type of, you know what I mean, quirky bit out of it. So that's how I've hoped. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. They say that comedy is a, uh, it's a healing mechanism. Yeah. And it, 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 you know, you have a choice. You can laugh or you can cry. And that's right. your choice. And, right. you know, I don't know about you, but laughing is a lot more fun. And Absolutely. it's, you know, it's the tragedy plus comedy, you know, I'm, comedy equals tragedy plus time mm-hmm. I think is the thing that people say and I definitely think that being able to do that uh, is it's a gift mm-hmm. yeah I mean it took time this I'm is not sorry. something I learned overnight but I've definitely noticed over time I'm able with observational humor and situational stuff to really just kind of real meet be quicker and say, Oh, that could be funny. That could be funny, even though it's horrible. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> but okay. So getting back to, I'm sorry to hear about some of those challenges with, with people that you've launched their career. But as you said, things are coming full circle for you. And this uh, new thing you have going on is, is definitely getting some major traction. But before we get into Matt in the Kitchen, just why don't you give us a little bit of a highlight of what led to you transitioning out of The Daily Show, um, if you want to talk a little bit about your company. And I don't know if it's still, if you still are working at Mad Cow Productions. No, my company doesn't work. I want to gloss over this next chapter just because 
Uh, yeah. I haven't even had coffee yet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but, um, so I, yeah, I, I left the Daily Show because I realized that I had gone through, you know, I climbed mountains and moved mountains uh, to become a mother. And I had my beautiful now, you know, toddler boy, Harry. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was missing everything. I, was, right. I missed first steps. I missed first words. We took the, and the for the election of t- to 2002, we took the Daily Show uh, to Washington right before election night, and I missed Halloween. Uh-oh. And I just was like, I can't do this. Okay. And the, the, you know, I just, I needed to get off the ride. It had worked because I put Harry in like, you know, afternoon preschool. That was an option near our house at the Montessori. So for the first, like, you know, three and a half, four years, it was okay because he could stay up late. He was like a baby Spaniard. Like, you know, I would come home at eight, we'd have dinner at at eight o'clock. Right. And then he could sleep till, you know, 11 and get up and go to school. So he was kind of on my schedule. And that was fine. But when he went to Bank Street to bring it all back together, where I went when my mom was on the faculty, um, he had to be at school at nine o'clock. And then I just never saw him. And it it became, you know, just this, my priorities were shifting. I, I feel like in retrospect, I should have left the Daily Show after the 2000 election. Like that was my our high, our highlight. Mm-hmm. We did so we changed media. It was an incredible experience. It was fun. We did some amazing comedy. I loved it. And then to the the midterm election was sort of like nothing, but we all put the same sort of energy and stress into it. And I couldn't take that energy and stress when I was missing Halloween. So. This is the story of why I left The Daily Show. Okay. We were in Washington, and I had asked Harry what he wanted to be for Halloween, you know, like back in September, so I could start planning. And he said he wanted to be Buzz Lightyear, mm-hmm. Buzz Lightyear. And uh, he had been Buzz Lightyear the year before. And I, so I was trying to push him into Woody, maybe, just something different. No, Buzz Lightyear. He wanted to be Buzz Lightyear. <laughs> So my, I knew I wasn't going to be with him because I was going to be in Washington. And so my maternal guilt manifested itself as I bought him every Buzz Lightyear Halloween costume accessory you could have. He had little laser beams. He had not the shoes that just covered, that come attached to the pants, actual boots, Buzz Lightyear boots. And then the, the, the real piece de resistance was he had a spaceship. It was a plush <laughs> stuffed spaceship Aww. that he wore on his shoulders, like on suspenders. Right. And, and so I'm in Washington and things are not going well. And uh, our, the studio we're at the, is run by, it was the first, one of the first studios computer run where now everybody is. And, but it, it, computers have problems and they, they crash and our computer right. crashed an hour before the show and I 
walked down into rehearsal and uh, got a really nasty response that this was something I better fix immediately with threats attached to it. And so that didn't sit well. So I walked over to my station and I called a friend who had Harry. He was with his friend Marcus and Michelle. I called Michelle's cell. They were trick-or-treating. And she she said, well, do you want to say hi to him? And so I get on the phone and I go, Harry, how's it going? And he goes, Mommy, may I please take the spaceship off now? And I, <laughs> hey, please take the spaceship off now. Right, right. I was bur- burdening him with my guilt. Like, he right. was carrying my maternal guilt around <laughs> on his tiny little shoulders. It just festooned as a, a, a space, cartoon spaceship. But it was at that second that I realized I had to get had out. To go. And I kind of, I, I, I quit like three days later. Okay. It just was like, okay. I can't. Okay. Because, yeah, you know, I, if I thought of all the suffering that I'd gone through to become a mother, and now I'm not, I am a mother, but I'm doing it, you know, long distance. I, mm-hmm. I, it was just like everything felt wrong. And they were nice, and, you know, they John threw me a party and got, you know, whatever, and I left. And okay. my goal in life was, to uh, become Mother of the Year. I wanted the mug. I wanted a mug that said Mother of the Year. I wanted a trophy. I Mm -hmm. dedicated my whole life to that. And so I got the names of all the kids in his class at Bank Street, and I made myself flashcards so that I could say hello to them and know all their names because I saw other mothers go in and go, oh, hi, Noah. Hi, Harry. And so (laughs) I just was Noah, Noah. There were two Noahs. Uh, you know, Evan, I just knew all their names and, and that was great. And then I could go to three in the afternoon, uh, sad birthday parties in the basement rec room of Upper West Side buildings. And that was fine. (laughs) And, uh, and then one day, one day was perfect. It snowed and my friend Claudia and I, she is a mother in the class too. We went, we bought sleds at a hardware store in Riverside Drive on West End Avenue on mm-hmm. Broadway, sorry, it doesn't matter. And we picked the boys up and we went sledding in uh, Riverside Park. Oh, and that wonderful. was something to me that was emblematic of what I would not have been able to have. Right. You know, it was an right. experience that I would never have been able to have. And it was beautiful and perfect. And I still remember it very vividly. That's then awesome. I got an offer of Garth and Sear, the guy that we had sold the Fox show to, uh, to come out and do a pilot for the WB with Steve Harvey. Yeah. And it was a show of Steve Harvey with all like my type of human interest to guess. Nice. So I went out to do the pilot and our pilot got picked up and I moved to LA and Harry came like he, I saw him every two weeks for, from September to December. And then, they moved, but I I knew that my marriage was over, which I don't need okay. to talk about here because no, it was that's sad. Okay. Um, but it, it, it just it did, you know it was it was a rough patch of road and it didn't survive. And uh, but now we're really good friends. We're great co-parents. He you know he sends me funny stuff. 
He's got a girlfriend. I'm married. It's all fine. It just yep. took a minute to get there. Um, but so I moved to LA and uh, never looked back. I kind of felt like the if you grow up in New York, you're supposed to hate LA. We're trained. It's kind of like you know the Palestinians throwing rocks at the Star of David. We would just throw it at the Welcome to LA sign or the LA mm-hmm. the Hollywood sign. <laughs> and uh, when I got to LA. I couldn't believe how, like, what you see when you visit L.A. has nothing to do with what L.A. is when you live there. Okay. Because everything is off the main thoroughfare. And I, you know, suddenly was staying at a house with a pool and, uh, you know, I thought I'd go hiking and go right out your door and just, I was in it. And I embraced it wholeheartedly. And I bought the house with the pool and the hot tub and the giant backyard. And I lived outside and it was, uh, there were some very good times. And I did some really good work with uh, Mad Cow Productions and I had amazing people work with me. But I couldn't get a show on the air. Like it had been so easy for me. Right. And like I got tons, you know, I made all these great shows. The one that the only one that really stuck in the long term was uh, current TV's Infomania, which I'm Infomania, super proud of. Right. I created a late, I yeah. created a, an amazing uh, show for BET called Don't Sleep, and they kept it on the air for four weeks. And it's like, what are you doing uh. with a strip at 11:30 with no promotion? You, you don't it's like it just doesn't happen that way. That right. was like totally, totally frustrating. And uh, yeah, like my dad died. It, 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 my, I moved both my parents out to LA because they couldn't live in their apartment in Manhattan. And it was very sad that my dad had succumbed to Parkinson's dementia and turned into a violent sexual predator. Oh my um, gosh. Which was so fun. Mm hmm. Oh. And my mom was failing and ended up having to sell my house because I was trying to, you know, I had a kid in high school and mm-hmm. my parents in two different facilities and I was just running all over L.A. And uh, so Harry was uh, getting ready to go to college. I was okay. living in a really nice sweet house in Sherman Oaks. I had orange trees. I put in a jacuzzi. Life was good. Uh, but the woman who owned the house had decided she didn't like living in rural Oregon and was coming back. So I had to look for a place to live. And I was, I I was working with a business partner who was a good friend of mine, but it wasn't a good business partnership. And I just was so tired of it. Like if I show you my pilot. You will just go, oh, my God, we did one called None of Your Business. It was a satire of business news. We shot it in Bloomberg. I did a morning show with Lauren Weedman that is okay. hilarious. It's on track. It's called The Fifth Hour. Like, just so many brilliant shows that should be oh. on the air that never got there. Right. And I, I was just getting, like, really bitter. and Right. Uh, and frustrated and didn't really see a future for myself and, and I didn't know what to do. And so uh, one day I, 
I, I went to look at a place, and my, uh, my, the GPS told me, you have arrived, and I was in a homeless encampment. Oh, gosh. And the house I was living at was behind, the, was looking at was behind the, uh, the Van Nuys courthouse, and it was out of my price range. Okay. And Harry was leaving. And that was what, like, the whole, like, my whole life was being his mom and three meals a day. And I went home, and I lay on the floor, and I cried all oh. weekend. I didn't, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And then Monday morning, I got a call from my manager, Rick Dorfman, and he says, uh, National Geographic wants to fly mm-hmm. you to New York to consult on the Explorer. They're revamping it with a studio aspect, so they're going to fly a business class to put you up at a hotel. And I was like, okay, and pay you, like, money. And I was like, okay. And I went, and I turned the show upside down, and I said, you can never leave. And I went back to L.A. and just moved in two days. My entire life thing just wow. went into storage. And me just going, storage, throw away, take <laughs> And, uh, oh my gosh! Went back and uh, did Explorer for seven months, and it was an incredible experience. And became friends with Jeff Goldblum and Ted Danson, and, and just like nice. crazy stuff. And and uh, yeah, and over that time, a man named Sam Packard, uh-huh. who had broken my heart in 1996, yep. he had connected with me four weeks before my 50th birthday. I came out, and he found me on Facebook, and he said, do you remember me? And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, no, I'm... I, oh, my gosh. Yes, I have your face emblazoned in, like, you know, a branding on my heart. Like, of course I remember you. And we kind of, like, dabbled a little, and it didn't work out. And then another, like, 10 years went by, or seven years. And but finally, when I went, uh, right before I went to uh, right before I went to New York for Explorer, I had gone to a girls' weekend in Palm Springs, and he had met me in Palm Springs, and uh, he, he had told me he loved me. And so when Aww. I got to New York, he came to see me, and I was staying in the same apartment I had been living in on Christopher Street. It's my friend Susanna's mother, you know. Of, building and uh and so I was in the same place I'd been and Sam came to visit me and he got really sick and at a certain point he had fever you're the one you're the best ever I don't know what I was ever hesitant about will you move to Seattle when this is over and I said yes okay okay oh my gosh so right you now pick up your from New York and now trans- yeah go ahead what was the transition like to let's start to now like tie things together like you said just for time purposes because I know okay, you need your so coffee but um so, yeah so your transition to Seattle and then unfortunately the pandemic hits and everything so to speak kind of unfortunately yeah, well, implodes. Where the magic happened right so I moved to Seattle I've never been here and for the first year I'm straddling both worlds and I'm commuting to New York and LA and I'm supposed to do a pilot in New York and a late night show with Carrie Keegan at E in LA. And I've also been hired. We've just gotten a green light on a comedy news show I'm doing for the uh, channel four in London. And I'm, and then within one week, they all died. 
Like the, mm-hmm. we couldn't get the talent for the British show. We uh, the late night show didn't happen because they made, he elected and uh, hired a new president, and she wasn't her thing. And the woman in New York who was doing the pilot said, "Yeah, now is not the time." And so I went, and now it's January, and it's and we're in Seattle, and it's fucking raining and getting dark at four o'clock. And I'm like, "What?" And Sam's at work all day, and I'm like, "What have I done?" Oh gosh. So. I don't, I'm kind of back where I was, although wetter uh, than it was in LA and, and I right. am and I'm happy and I'm meeting new friends and doing stuff. But he gives me a cooking class for Christmas and I take something called knife skills and it's, uh, you know, 90 minutes of slicing carrots and cucumbers and celery and onions. And the chef that's teaching it is very nice and knowledgeable, but he's quiet. So I start entertaining the troops. I turn it into, you know, the writer's room, and I'm joking right. with everybody. And at the end of the class, he calls me over, and he, I think, oh, I'm busted. He's going to yell at me. That was disruptive. I'm trying to do right. it. Instead, he says, uh, have you ever taught cooking? He said, you have a great personality. You obviously love food. I run a a, a School, uh, cooking school in Seattle, and we do corporate team building events. We're always looking for people to lead the classes, and we'll train you. Nice. And that was the pivot. And right. so I went from arguably the top of one industry to the very bottom of another. Uh huh. And it was brutal. They were so mean to me. They called me the home cook. And what is who is this home cook that's here now? And uh, the women were actually very supportive and uh, they were all, we were doing competitions. We did like little uh, iron chefs and you would have your, your protein and then you would stop, stock the pantry and you would come up with a plan with your team. And then you had 90 minutes to make a main course, two sides and a dessert. Go. And <laughs> then you'd be judged. There would be judges at the end. And it was hectic and crazy. And I got burnt and I burnt things and I undercooked things and I, cut myself it was amazing and after about you know seven months this time I started winning the competitions. nice and if I if I tell you it gave me so much confidence because I was like I always knew I was a really good cook and I knew that I always loved it but this proved to me that my instincts were valid and that absolutely you know I, I had some skills that I wasn't aware of and so now I'm going to be turning 61. Sam proposed to me on Memorial Day weekend. It's 2019. We're planning our dream wedding on a beach in Mexico. The producer in me comes out. I've got rhinestone flip-flops. I have 65 little pouches of biodegradable confetti. I've got every song, every minute, every photograph oh. planned. People are coming. He lived in Colombia for a while and his friend was coming from Colombia to be at our wedding. All his friends and family were coming. All my friends and family were coming. It was going to be the party of a lifetime. And when I had my birthday and I turned 61 that September, I said, Madeline Smithberg, look at you. You are 61 years old. You've pivoted to a new career following your passion. You're marrying the love of your life on a beach in Mexico. Yeah. Look at you, go you. And I gave myself like a hearty nice. pat on the back. Mm-hmm. And then COVID came. 
Right. We ended oh up avoiding it. Blue Ribbon closed uh, before the beginning of March because once there's like hints of a virus, food is not what anyone wants to do in a group. Right. And uh, oh, so that closed, and I was like, there went my pivot. And then our wedding got canceled, and we just went in front of a judge in Bellevue. The next day, they would close the courthouses. Like, we literally got married the last day we could have. And now we are on our honeymoon, quote, unquote, but it's in rainy Seattle in March, and uh, it's depressing. Absolutely. And one I'm so day, sorry. So, uh, yeah, during this day, time, I'm I know that like, you were, like, kind of, like you said, you were really depressed, understandably so. I, I can't even imagine. And just kind of playing around a little bit, I think, what I read about. And then what is that moment, that one day? Like, what drives you to basically get I up really and say, don't Sam? So, yeah, I said, I Sam, mean, here's my yeah. iPhone. Come yep. into the kitchen with me. I'm making pasta, and we're going to put it on YouTube. And he says, what? And then takes the phone, and I make peachy uh, burrosalia e pizzelli, which is peachy pasta, so fat spaghetti with butter, sage, peas, and parmesan. Mm, and, okay. Uh, that I invented. And uh, people start reacting to it. So I'm like, oh, I have a YouTube channel. And then I start shooting more episodes. And then this man named Sky Gleason, who I had met on the Graham Care documentary, calls me up and says, I want to edit for you. And he's an editor. And I say, excuse me? Yeah, I just thought you said you want to edit for me because I can't edit. And Sky comes on. And then uh, we end up getting, the, I, we're doing the videos now. Sky's shooting them. We've gotten more elaborate. Like we have a crew of sort of volunteers that are helping us. And, you know, but we have, and then all of a sudden we get Marisa and Marisa Mahoney had just graduated from film school, was living at home with her parents. It was going to, wanted to be in LA, but couldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, had had a YouTube channel when she was in high school that had a video that got 10 million views. Oh my gosh. So okay. Came, she's now a producer with Madden Kitchen. She does all my social media. She's on the shows with me. She's my right hand. I don't know what I could do without her. And now Sky joins this virtual uh, uh, chat room thing called Office Hours. And it's all the top techie people in the world. And they okay. get on and they talk tech for three hours every morning. And it's, you know, the hub of it is that Industrial Light and Magic where, you know, Lucasfilms are and there are people in London. And they... <laughs> are at the cutting edge of connective tech, which is, you know, Zoom, but Zoom on crack. Right, and right, wow. You know, yeah, and they decide that they want to adopt me uh, as a project to do live shows. But I'm cutting ahead because before that, I ended up getting booked. A guy that, here you go, I didn't hire on The Daily Show, but was an intern at Letterman. But I sent him the nicest rejection letter that he had kept over okay. all these years. He's now okay. producing a morning show out of uh, Portland called AM Northwest. And he said, why don't you come on and you can cook and you can tell some Letterman stories. Well, I've been on that show now, I think, six times. Suddenly awesome. I get booked on another show out of Minneapolis called The Jason Show. 
And then a friend of mine in New York who was a publicist and I knew because she used to put the Ringling Brothers stuff with me on Letterman. She has a friend at the Today Show. She goes, I'm going to pitch you. And they said yes. And now I've been on the Today Show three times. I'm a regular. You start doing Zoom cooking classes that you can pay for, like for corporate team building, which is really fun. And I did like a lot of those where – because during COVID, people, we had parties with, like, companies, and we did Sam's Company, and we did two Amazon events, and I'm the, like, only, I'm a regular on the uh, National Education Association in Washington, which is the teachers' unions in okay. Washington, and glo- globally, I've done, like, five events with them, where I send them, you know, the recipes and shopping list, and everyone cooks together, and it's super fun for everyone and they make delicious food and they feel like they're together. We did, uh, we started doing a lot of that and uh, we were making money, which is like just crazy. And then, uh, but then the office hours thing happened. They came to us and they said, we want to adopt you and we want to do Mad in the Kitchen as a live event. And I wanted it to be a live event. I had produced live events on my own, just following my gut because I, and when we did live, like on the Daily Show for election night, there's something about live that is different than anything else. It's different than live to tape. It's like all the buffers are gone. You're not wearing a seatbelt. You're leaning through space, and mm-hmm. it is amazing. And I had done so. I did a pizza party where we ordered, uh, we made pizzas in a pizza oven, and then we ordered pizzas and had pizza races and. We had a house band. I really give it like a late night field. And then we did something called Mad Marchness, which was I learned to make jambalaya from a Cajun chef, but we treated it like March Madness. And Harry, my son, did color commentary live from his room in Chico and was hilarious as if he was covering sports, but he's doing me cooking like Madeline's night. Oh, that's hysterical. Underwhelming (laughs) this season. Just fucking hilarious. And, uh, but it rained in the middle of the show. My house band, Oregon, you know, keyboard got drenched. Uh, oh, but gosh. It, we had problems and it was a mess, but it was so much fun that they saw that and they said, we want to adopt you and take Mad in the Kitchen live and do an eight week run. And so that's what I just finished last Saturday. And okay. it okay. was amazing. And so the format I came up with, was each week another chef teaches me a signature dish and then people cook along at home, which is three designated home chefs and audio and their video, and we all cook together live. Yeah, no, that was fantastic. uh, Like I said, I watched the one last night with the Chef Andrew Gruel of Slapfish Seafood, and, yeah, it was just – I loved it. I mean, I loved – and I got a chance to see Marisa, too. So it was just so cool. Yeah. Seeing all those pieces, yeah. it's, and you know, did come it together all in my house, and mm-hmm. but we had, you know, like our the person that's doing our routing electro, uh, our, the routing engineer was in the Philippines. The control room is in at Industrial Light Magic. My director, I finally got a director after the fourth show. His name is Nate Hill. He changed my life. He was like, you know, juggling us with directing. Jackson Brown for Jimmy Kimmel Live, and now he's going to be going to Tokyo because he's doing the Olympics. And all these people were working for me for free. That's amazing. Congratulations. I mean, seriously, Madeline, you should be extremely 
proud of yourself and your entire crew. I mean, what my a what crew, a project my team. you guys like, are doing. It's just been, and if you just saw, it was like Chicken Little, like people just coming out and joining and coming to be a part of it. Suddenly I had a hair and makeup woman, Denise, her daughter Ava was running my prompter, and then the woman who was doing my food styling, prepping the food, couldn't do it because she got too busy at the garden she worked with. And so Ava, 17-year-old, does all my food prep, and she's awesome. incredible. That's great. Yeah. That and her so mom great. does my hair and makeup. It's like a potluck production company. But <laughs> That's it's a great really, way to describe it. Yeah. It's, oh it's really gosh. worked. And now we have uh, Al Roker's company, Al Roker Entertainment, and mm-hmm. a company called The Story Lab are, are joining us and trying to find these sponsors and networks. And, you know, it's all happening. And I did it all without leaving my house. Except to go to Trader Joe's, right? To shop. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's that's such an interesting. And I want to, just for time purposes, because I had the show set for two hours, and thank you for going this long. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the blessing in disguise too. At this point, is despite everything that unfortunately went on with the pandemic, and hopefully things are starting to come around. If God forbid things don't go in the right direction, you can do this no matter what, and that's just that's such an amazing. I can amazing do it thing. no matter what, and I can do it anywhere. And, exactly. Uh, what they think, what they think, the Story Lab uh, people and the Roper recognize it is that we're on the cutting edge of a new form of entertainment that mm-hmm. is purely entertainment. It's got a late night feel. There's, it's a comedy show, but there's real cooking, real chefs. And it's interactive and that the interactivity is this new facet that is going to be a part of the entertainment experience because uh, it's something that keeps people involved. It's not a passive thing. You're actually involved. Right. And right. so we're taking it out. We're taking it out. I'm excited. Yeah. I mean, it's fantastic, everything that you're doing. And yeah, real quickly, why don't you just tie in? Um, I want to ask you one question because this, and I'll bring you on another time. I'm sure you're going to have a ton more stuff coming out in the near future that we could also delve into. But the title, Mad in the Kitchen, I just thought like, interestingly, from a psychological perspective, of course, I'm always analyzing everything. Um, of course, Mad is, I'm sure, a nickname for you. But to me, it also had this it's connotation of, what's that? Yes, my name. My best friend yep. called me Mad. People from also, high school call me Maddie. Okay. But does the But it also of, means crazy. Right, that's what I was going to say. In a, in a yeah. good way. It, so in a good way, on, like a... It, yeah. Like a mad it's, scientist it kind of levels. doing her thing. <laughs> it's on two levels, and, uh, you know, it, it works. And it had... We had uh, it, it actually was born... On, on uh, Palm Springs Girls Weekend, not the one where I met Sam, but a couple ones before my friends in L.A. and I go to okay. Palm Springs frequently for Girls Weekends. And we, I cooked a dinner and we all ate and we're talking and they said, this should be a show and it should be called Mad in the Kitchen. That's awesome. No, I love it. It's perfect. It, it, it suits you, like you said. It's, it's multifaceted and it suits you on all the levels and it's, it's absolutely perfect. So, yeah, really quick, also just quickly throw out there, um, I know you said you're going to write a book. Is this going to be a cooking book? Is it an autobiography? Is it a combination of I, stuff? You know, I'm working on that. There definitely has to be a cookbook just because it has to be a companion piece to the show. Right. And I don't know if I make it a cookbook with the stories or if I do a separate 
you know, autobiography. I always right. thought I would write an autobiography called Someday This Will Be Funny, which is what you and I were talking about before. Yeah. Where, you know, something terrible happens and you just start thinking about, well, it's going to make a really good story. So Absolutely. That. Cool. And, and uh, what about? So I don't know. I'm. I'm, Another I'm, idea I'm ruminating, I have. but I'm also going to do a, I'm going to do a line of products. Yeah. There's going to be Matt in the Kitchen aprons and mitts and cutting boards and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, building a little empire here, just one step at a time, uh, all without ever leaving my house. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's incredible. And lastly, something I would, and this was one of the first things when I thought of too, not just the book, like you said, an autobiography, but when I was just doing my research on you, that I mean, I thought this is this is great for either a movie or maybe like some type of a limited like you know Netflix series. I mean, that's what I saw right away. I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is fantastic. Yeah, and not, I totally no, I'm not see saying, that. I, yeah, yeah, I totally see that. It's you know, it's like a journey. And it's yes. a journey through different worlds, and then things come back and tie themselves together. I do see it as being it could be a movie, but right now I'm I'm you know those yep. things are more a little more off in the future. I'm Absolutely. really just focusing on the. I feel like I ended up sort of unconsciously uh, piloting a tv show which is just so funny because i swore i was out of tv <laughs> <laughs> no i mean yeah that's it that's that's a great analogy and a great way to um you know to look at it from that perspective absolutely oh so yeah oh my gosh madeline what an amazing time i had with you and thank you so much for just sharing your story and i'm so excited to see where you're going to be going um so yeah please plug where people can find it was you. It my pleasure. You. You're a wonderful interviewer because you really, uh, you inform yourself and you also have like, I love the psychological aspect of it that you started with my childhood. Uh, my mother, had, she had the brain span to be able to listen to this, would really appreciate that. Um, but no, it's been just a pleasure. And, you know, the where I'm sending people these days is to madinthekitchen.com. You can watch all the videos there. And then also, if you want to book a live virtual cooking class, you get Mad in the Kitchen live in your kitchen. Uh, that information is on there, too. We have many different, you know, packages. There's really basic and small ones, so really elaborate ones where we buy all the ingredients and send them to you. And, uh, you know, so my focus is really uh, getting back to doing some of the, the live Zoom uh corporate team building, family parties, uh, cocktail parties, that sort of thing. And then also, obviously, now what we're doing is taking all of this material that we've made and editing it into a, you know, the world's most exciting sizzle reel for uh, a, a TV show uh, and, you know, sort of packaging. I'm taking a moment to just sort of chill a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like the, the eight weeks, eight weeks straight of working six days a week and being on camera and producing a show wow. and segment producing a show and script supervising a show. And uh, yeah, it's been, and shopping for food and then cooking and in makeup, you know, being a host is uh, it's wonderful, but it definitely was a little bit draining. So now I'm just giving myself some, uh, some mad time. 
There you uh, go. <laughs> and figuring awesome. out my summer, I want to see my son. So either he'll come here or we'll go there or whatever, but we'll see. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you're up to. You are always welcome back on the show, and we'll absolutely stay in touch and, and talk about having you come on down the road to, you know, to discuss some new things that are in the works and where you're at, okay? You got it. All right. Thank you so Thank much, you Madeline. It was an absolute, me. absolutely, absolute pleasure. It's my pleasure. I'll talk okay. to you soon, Carrie. Yeah, much continued Bye. success to you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, Madeline Smithberg of the hit YouTube series, Mad in the Kitchen, unbelievable. Uh, just about have a couple minutes left before my show is going to wrap up because I booked two hours for her, and uh, she definitely took us through those two hours. So if you tuned in late, please check out the podcast when it's over, stream it or download it. She is just an absolute phenomenon, and um, I'm really excited and really proud of this interview that, that she and I did together. It was really cool. Also, become a fan of The Carrie Edelman Show. I am on Facebook at Carrie Edelman, and also you can follow me on Instagram, Carrie Edelman. Befriend me on Facebook if you'd like. I regularly post upcoming shows and interviewees that I'm going to have. And uh, please, yeah, also check out The Carrie Edelman Show on YouTube. You can stream all of my shows there. There's about 260 interviews at this point. She actually might be my 260th interview today. So been re- working really hard, doing something different, and really want to take my guests on an interesting journey where you're not going to hear interviews like this elsewhere. It's a, not a cookie-cutter interview and very in-depth and a lot of research. So check it out. Leave me some comments if you like what you hear. Um, please share my pages. Let's, uh, I'd like to also get this to another level too. So thank you so much for tuning in and have a great day.